0: I'm Aaron Ross Powell, and this is Reimagining Liberty, a podcast exploring the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical political and economic freedom. Capitalists might say that free markets not only produce wealth, but that wealth then empowers workers to have more say over their conditions and more freedom to exit from bad working situations. And this enables experimentation with different workplace organizational structures, Socialists might counter that capitalism concentrates so much power in the hands of owners and bosses that workers have little or no say in their circumstances and lack the resources to exit or organize. To dig into this debate between socialism and capitalism, I'm joined by two guests today. First is socialist and frequent Reimagining Liberty guest, Matt McManus. He's a lecturer at the University of Michigan and the author of, among other books, The Rise of Postmodern Conservatism. Taking the capitalist side is Christopher Fryman, associate professor of philosophy at William and Mary, and author of Unequivocal Justice and Why It's Okay to Ignore Politics. I hope you enjoy our conversation, and be sure to stick around to the end for a preview of the next Reimagining Liberty, as well as information on how you can become a supporter and get all episodes two weeks early, and gain access to our fun Discord listener community and book club. Chris, we'll start with you. Why aren't you a socialist?
1: So the short answer is that it, it doesn't work. So when you look at countries that are prosperous and liberal and democratic, they're capitalist. So they haven't collectivized ownership of productive property or anything like that. Now, now you know, most capitalist economies, they have welfare states, they have regulation, but productive property is still largely privately owned, and that's what I take to be the, the distinctive feature of socialism is some kind of collectivization of public or of productive property, uh, rather than something like capitalism with a large welfare state. So if you just look at the, the countries that, that do well, uh, they're all capitalist, with again, varying degrees of regulation and redistribution and so on. That, for me, is really the strongest argument against socialism, is we don't have strong evidence. It works. Now, as as far as some of the reasons why it doesn't seem to work, that's going to depend on the the style of socialism you advocate, I suppose. So, if we're talking about something like full scale central planning of the economy, uh, you know, there, there are, of course, the Hayekian arguments as to why that doesn't work. If you don't have market signals, you just can't make rational economic decisions. And so, I think you know that's that's pretty much well covered i won't spend a whole lot of time talking about that but even if you have a, a different sort of socialism in mind where it's you know i don't know a bunch of worker cooperatives or something like that i still think there are lots of problems uh so for example those those kinds of arrangements and i take it any kind of social socialist arrangement is going to involve uh collectivizing decision making so you're in a co-op and it's democratically run for example well, the main problem with any kind of collectivization of decision-making is that it doesn't provide the individual decision-makers in that collective with strong incentives to make wise decisions. So this is just a familiar problem of rational ignorance, rational rationality. If you have a very small chance of having a decision actually make a difference, you just don't have much of an incentive to put a lot of time into making an informed and unbiased choice. So for example, you say... I don't know, there's going to be a, a 1 in 500 chance, I'm just making this number up, a 1 in 500 chance uh, you got a pop quiz in class tomorrow. You're probably not going to invest a whole lot of time studying for that, as opposed to a situation where you know you're going to have the pop quiz then you're probably going to study in that case. Uh, and, the, and, you know, cooperatives are kind of like the first case where it's like maybe you get a vote. But what are the odds that your vote is actually going to make a difference, actually going to be decisive? Pretty low, certainly a lot uh, lower than, than your choice being decisive in, say, a capitalist economy, if you're a capitalist employer, for example. And so individuals in this kind of cooperative just don't have strong incentives uh, to make unbiased, informed decisions. So that's one reason why I'm not uh, a huge fan of cooperatives. Another reason is just uh, it's not obvious to me. That everybody wants to be a worker owner in the way that a lot of uh you know socialist uh, economies would have them be so maybe some people do, but I think a lot of people are are happy with the the kind of standard capitalist employer employee relationship where as an employee they don't have to take on the risk and role and responsibility of a worker owner and so it's hard for me to see how a socialist economy is compatible with the idea that You know, people get to pursue their own good in their own way. For a lot of people, pursuing their own good in their own way is just going to involve being an employee uh, in in a regular old sort of capitalist economic structure. The other thing, too, I mean, this is something that Nozick talks a lot about, but I think it's pretty convincing. Uh, Under capitalism, nobody's stopping you from working in a co-op. So if you really like this idea of, of being a worker owner, you're free to go for it. Uh, and so it seems to me that, uh, as Nozick says, capitalism can accommodate socialist arrangement, but socialism can't really accommodate capitalist arrangement. So if if pro- uh, productive property ownership is collectivized and then I want to start, uh, you know, a, a good old fashioned capitalist business where I'm the employer with employees who I pay a steady wage and they're not worker owners, that's going to have to be prohibited. So capitalism can accommodate socialism and socialist lifestyles, uh, but socialism can't accommodate capitalist lifestyles. And so unless we have some sort of reason for thinking that, that capitalist lifestyles are, uh, we have good reason to sort of like disallow them or in Rawlsian terms, no reasonable person could want to live that way. Uh, I don't see how socialism can, can be uh, a- appropriately liberal. And I think I'll leave it at that, and we could talk more about uh, any of the details as we go on.
0: Matt, that sounds pretty convincing. Has he talked you out of being a socialist?
2: Yeah, yeah I'm going to go reevaluate everything, you know, just sit there and do that, you know, why I left the left kind of article and you know, sit there and be like, now Peter I'll send the check uh, as soon as he can. That was
1: quick, it only took five yeah. minutes.
2: Yeah, no, well, I'm moving now. It'd be really handy, right? Uh, well, look, you know, um, I'm the first one to sit there and say that I don't have anything good to say about the command economies that Chris rightly criticized. I don't think that there's a way of answering the calculation problems raised by people like Hayek or Von Misa, and I think there's good reasons uh, why it is that those models collapsed. I also don't have very good things to say about, let's call it the kleptocratic model of socialism that you find in several developing states. Most of it will be Venezuela, which I think have different kind of problems uh, than what you saw in the command economies, but also problems that eventually led not necessarily to collapse so far, uh, but at least a widespread poverty and deprivation. The kind of socialism that I endorse is the kind of socialism that you would find in many of the Nordic countries, which, by the way, are the most successful in the world, uh, many of which were built by things like the Great Compromise, starting in the 1930s, uh, between workers and capitalists, uh, and advanced by things like the Swedish Social Democratic Party. uh, And they're centered around high levels of distribution, the provision of not just a social minimum, but a generous array uh, of welfare goods uh, and high levels of worker participation uh, in the economy, certainly compared to North America. Now, I would complement that with further provisions. Uh, for instance, something like the co-determination model that you see into Germany, particularly the auto sector, which, by the way, I should say is extremely competitive and very successful, uh, where workers actually will sit on the boards of major corporations uh, and either have veto power or at least a very significant say in what's going on, I also think, are things that we could adapt successfully here. Uh, And the reason why it is that I point to these situations is these are all contexts where what we see is a socialist or social democratic party uh, pushing for a market system, uh, but one where the benefits of markets are spread in a more egalitarian manner and which allow the citizens of these states to live lives that are freer, more flourishing, uh, and more cooperative. So that's the kind of socialism that I would endorse, a liberal kind of socialism, very much in line with what somebody like John Rawls advocated for in his last book, Justice is Fairness. Uh, you could also call it property-owning democracy. If you wanted to use um, the other Rawlsian term, I just think liberal socialism is a little bit cleaner. So on a lot of points, uh, for instance, about you know the failure of the command economy model, uh, I completely agree with Chris. Uh, but I'm just saying that we have to look at the examples that are good and bad, uh, and of course, we can also point to many examples of hypercapitalist states that are authoritarian, uh, where people were dragged to jail, where it is that people had very little individual freedoms. Think about Chile in the 1970s, right? So, let's be even-handed.
0: Can I ask a question of definitions before I before Chris responds to that? Because what are so first, Matt? I'll ask you, and then Chris, I'll ask you a version of this, Matt. What are the fundamental definitional characteristics of socialism? Because it, in your in your answer just now, you said there's there are there are socialist characteristics, or countries that are called socialists that you reject a lot of, and then there are others that you like. And so, what is what is the common theme that makes something socialist?
2: Sure. Well, I have a different definition, as does every socialist, right? Uh, I mean, early socialists define socialism as worker control of the means of production, uh, which, as Chris pointed out, is Uniformly considered to be like the most popular one. Uh, and I support dimensions of that again, uh, certainly with this co determination model that I endorse. Uh, and I also happen to like workplace cooperatives, which we can get into a little bit. I like them a lot. Um, Marx famously described socialism in a somewhat different way, or communism, uh, as a situation uh, where there's no longer going to be a production process where the extraction of surplus value uh, was carried out um, through private ownership of the means of production. Uh, My kind of socialism, again, would be very much in line with what Rawls is talking about, Uh, a society where people are treated as free moral equals, uh, where they are empowered to lead their particular vision of the good life. So there's definitely a libertarian streak to it. uh, But acknowledging that the most successful kind of society where people can do so is one where the power differentials uh, that emerge as a result of unbridled capitalist relations, uh, including power differentials that emerge through state cooperation uh with major capitalist firms uh are liquidated uh by a variety of different measures including high levels of unionization fostering of workplace cooperatives and workplace democracy uh, and again extremely generous uh welfare benefits so you can see me as endorsing something like sweden on steroids Uh, maybe something like sweden uh, along the lines proposed by the meidner plan in the 1970s um now, again, it's going to be contextually different because I think that one of the problems uh, with 20th century socialism and with 20th century capitalism uh, was this kind of imperialist belief that we could just export a model that was appropriate for one country to a very different area of the world with a very different history, very different politics, and say, just do that and everything will go fine. And we all know that that's rarely the case, uh, whether it's in you know Latin America or whether it's in Iraq, right? Uh, so it would have to be adapted considerably uh, depending on the circumstance, but – that's what I'm talking about.
0: And so, Chris, can you, before you respond to Matt's prior arguments, can you tell us what you mean? What are the fundamental characteristics that makes a system capitalist?
1: Yeah, I would say really the distinguishing feature is the, the private ownership of productive property. Uh, so we don't have uh, the collectivization of, say, the production and distribution of food or clothing or cars, all, the, all those sorts of things. And so I guess, so I, I mean, this is partly a terminological dispute, but I think there is a substantive dispute here too. I don't think Sweden's socialist. Um, so I think it's, a, it's welfare state capitalism. And I think that is, so, I, you know, I've got my issues with, with Sweden. I'll talk about some of them, uh, but I just don't think that that's a, a socialist country. I think it's, it's more or less a capitalist economy uh, with actually surprisingly little regulation uh, and a bit welfare state. And, and so, like that, to me, you know, that's that's not that's not bad. That's not bad. Uh, I think it, it has lots of room for improvement. Sweden has more billionaires per capita than the United States. Uh, you know, in, in many ways, uh, like I said, it's it's economically freer than the United States. Um, I also think, too. I mean, one issue with with these countries with ha- that have big welfare states uh, is that they um, they free ride off of innovation from countries like the United States. So for example, you might have something like socialized medicine, but the medical innovation is not coming from those countries. It's coming from countries that that are probably closer to something like uh, pure capitalism. And so I think that's one issue with saying, make the whole world like Sweden. Uh, I think there are gonna be issues with things like pharmaceutical innovation, technological innovation in general. But but like I said, you know, welfare state capitalism is maybe not my ideal, uh, but I think it's it's fine. I don't think it's like I said. It doesn't. They haven't collectivized the production and distribution of uh, food, for example. And so, it, to me, it just sounds like we're really debating the extent to which capitalism should involve regulation and redistribution, rather than whether or not capitalism is superior to socialism. I think if you grant me Sweden, you grant that capitalism is better than socialism. And now we're just haggling over the details.
2: Well, again, I would dispute that uh, with a you know a kind of and I'm kind of moderate way, uh, you know, because I want to keep this friendly. Uh, and the way that I dispute it is this way. Uh, so first off, I think it is nice uh, to actually hear somebody uh, who defends capitalism by saying that welfareism is compatible uh, with capitalism. Because I know some people who would dispute that, right? Um, particularly on the American right today, where if you just that's the most minuscule. Um, welfare program, people will say that you're marching on the road to the gulag or something. So I really appreciate that. And I think that's a good point, jumping off point for debate. Uh, Well, look, you know, I would agree that there are large features of Nordic style social democracy, uh, which is the way that is usually connoted, kind of this midway point uh, that I think need to be pushed further. Uh, So for instance, I do think that we would want to adapt something more like the Meidner plan uh, proposed in the 1970s if we were to achieve a more robust kind of socialism uh, in those states. But I do think that they demonstrate how it is that you can engage in reformist programs that advance you further along the way to a more democratic uh, form of the economy uh, without needing to use violence and without sacrificing a lot of the virtues of markets. And I think this is the key point. Uh, The kind of market socialism that I endorse doesn't require uh, something like a command economy where the state essentially dictates how it is that production is going to be carried out. I'm absolutely fine with a wide variety of... A private actors being motivated uh, to a certain extent by the profits uh, – sorry, by the pursuit of profit uh, and use that in order to foster innovation uh, and in order to remain competitive. I just think that preferably the firms will be organized democratically uh, and they'll involve high levels of workplace – sorry, worker participation and the management of decisions. Uh, and again, I think that there are a lot of models that show how that is that works. Uh, Co-determination in Germany is a very transparent one, Uh, but there's also a lot of evidence, contra the initial point, that things like workplace cooperatives do actually make people happier and do actually entail better outcomes for workers. Uh, There was a big comprehensive study in France, I think in 2011, uh, that showed overall when workers were in a co-op, they were happier uh, with what was going on. Now, this is no utopia, right? You still have to go to work, you still have to clock in, you still have to, you know, cash your check at the end of the week and complain that, you know, it's not as big as you want. Uh, but it's definitely a lot bigger and you definitely feel like you have a lot more dignity uh, than working for somebody uh, in a more exploitative situation. So this is just
1: a, a, a question of clarification. So under your preferred version of socialism, though, suppose I say, look, I don't want the, the, the role or responsibility of being a worker owner. I just, want, I, I just want a steady income and I want to work for someone. And someone says, "Okay, you can work for me for the steady income. Would you permit that, or would you prohibit that sort of arrangement?"
2: Yeah, I would actually permit that, right? Uh, As long as there was a robust welfare state that would allow them to exit that kind of situation and not be destitute, that's a personal decision that people are making, right? Uh, And again, this is why my socialism isn't bound up in one particular feature or another. I think there needs to be a lot of well, sorry, cooperative, overlapping institutions uh, that will create, uh, a just society through the kind of catalytic interactions, uh, between all of them. Uh, so if you wanted to go into a traditional, let's call it workplace, right? Where somebody makes all the decisions for you, you just cash your check and go home. And we've all been there, right? I've been in that kind of situation where I'm like, I just want to fucking go do my job, leave, uh, and play video games or whatever. I don't need anything more than that. Uh, that's fine. Uh, but you know, if you ever want to leave that place, uh, you're not going to lose your health insurance. You're not going to sit there and be out on the street uh, after your last paycheck is couched. You're not going to sit there and think, well, I can't pursue any other meaningful career because I can't go back and ed- get an education. All that will be provided for you.
1: Right. So that, that, those, uh, again, seems a lot to me like capitalism supplemented with a welfare state or, or, you know, as I would prefer it, capitalism with something like a UBI or a negative income tax. So maybe we could debate the merits of in-kind redistribution versus cash cash transfers or something like that. Uh, but setting that to the side, we could say, look, you know, you could enter whatever kind of workplace arrangement that you want. Uh, but you know, if you fall below a certain level of poverty, or maybe everybody gets the check, like I said, maybe you know, we could argue about the details. Uh, you, you won't be without an income because there's something like a negative income tax or a UBI in place. So I would say all of your concerns can be accommodated with something like even almost like laissez-faire capitalism with a negative income tax. So why isn't that persuasive to you?
2: Well, I think now we're just getting really close to the middle, right, where things get definitionally blurry. Uh, And I think it really depends on how dogmatically you want to assert the term socialism or capitalism, right? Uh, Because obviously, once you reach a threshold of welfarist uh, redistribution, uh, along with you know efforts to try to establish workplace cooperatives and democratize the economy, uh, even if the firms remain private and there are markets in place, you're getting very close to something that a lot of socialists, uh, for instance again meidner uh, would endorse right uh, now, in terms of you know how it is that this can be compatible with something like individual liberty, uh, I think that there's a lot of overlap between what most socialists want today and what a lot of libertarians want, particularly on social issues, for example. Uh, So, for instance, I feel a lot more aligned uh, with you guys on points like abortion recently, right? And by the way, I have to say, Aaron, great job uh, being so militant on that recently, right, because it's an outrage what's going on. I feel very, very uh, confident saying that uh, when it comes to things like decriminalization and immigration, most socialists would be there with you. Uh, The big concern, again, uh, isn't necessarily with individual choice so much as, again, the power disparities that emerge in an unbridled capitalist economy that limit people's capacity for freedom. Uh, now, how it is that you can most successfully combat that in any number of different contexts will vary quite a bit. Um, but I would argue that if we look at what's going on in the United States right now, uh, where, for instance, you have comparatively unbridled markets, and I understand that you know there are ways in which the system is extremely regulated, uh, coupled with a state that's extremely... Uh, active and entrenching certain interests uh, at the expense of others, it's very, very difficult to say that this is the freest society we could possibly have.
1: Yeah, so I certainly would not say the United States is the freest society we could possibly have. Uh, it, it, but in terms of the, the emphasis on individual liberty, then, so, so I mean, here, here's what I would say. Okay, we get capitalism, we get all the good stuff, we get the economic growth, and, you know, like I said, there's, a, you know, like you said, there's a lot of stuff that the state is doing in the United States, that I would oppose. So we get, we get all that stuff out of the way. We, you know, we make people rich via capitalism, but we, maybe we also have a very healthy UBI. And then we say, okay, uh, you know workers are rich, they're comparatively rich, and they've got, a, they've got a nice little safety net. And we can't say a priori uh, what the optimal level of, say, democratically controlled workplaces are. If workers want to work in them, they'll emerge. Uh, if they don't, they won't. But we can't really sit here in the armchair and say what the optimal level of workplace democracy is, any more than I could say like I don't know what the optimal level of like uh, like Netflix sitcoms are. Like I don't know. It's whatever the market decides. We just empower people to to have that option, to have that as a viable option, and whatever they choose to do is in some sense the optimal choice. So is that persuasive to you? So we say capitalism plus the UBI. So workers are definitely empowered uh, to enter those sorts of arrangements if they choose. And then let's just see how it, how it plays out with individual choices rather than say from the armchair, this is what we ought to be. like. It Wouldn't it be weird if I said, we, we, need, more, like, we need more Netflix comedies. I know that's like a trivial example. I could probably come up with a better example. But we just say, like, give people the means to, to pursue their own good in their own way and see how that shakes out.
2: Well, I mean, frankly, at this point, being threatened with more bad Netflix comedies uh, actually sounds like a terrifying thing, uh, the last thing that any of us need, right? But, you know, and i uh, saying that after COVID, having watched like 10 million of them, right? But let, let's put that aside for a minute, right? Uh, again, I think when it comes to these granular questions, uh, again, what the appropriate level of, say, worker cooperatives uh, or co determined firms in a society should be. Uh, is really going to depend a lot on context, right? Uh, And Germany is a very different country than the United States, is a very different country than Sweden, is a very different country, say, from Brazil, right? Uh, And what we need to do is look at the specific uh, material conditions in each of those situations and make a judgment call. Uh, but I don't think that just because the question is answerable, uh, sorry, inanswerable a priori, uh, that there are good a posteriori ways that we can make these evaluations. Uh, so, for instance, in Germany, when the co determination model was introduced uh, through cooperation between uh, the Christian Democratic Union uh, and the Social Democratic Party, right? Uh, sometimes it's called, you know, the Great Coalition or the Grand Coalition, right? Uh, the idea was that. What we could do is we take the largest firms in the country, typically automotive firms, but there are other ones right there, uh, and we institute this model and we experiment with it and we see how well it works. And it worked extremely well and was gradually extended across more areas of the economy. Uh, that's a kind of reform that I could get behind because it's experimental, it has flexibility built into it, uh, and it turns out that a lot of workers liked it. And uh, once they realized that other people were getting it, uh, more workers decided to call for it. Right. Uh, When it comes to things like workplace cooperatives, I think the situation is a bit trickier, since that's a more ambitious kind of approach than what we see in the co-determination model. Uh, But it's worth noting that actually in some countries like France, there's actually more workplace cooperatives now and more workplace cooperatives forming uh, than there were in the past. Uh, Now, there are a lot of different reasons for that. Part of it is just the fact that workers, qua the study I just mentioned, do in fact like workplace cooperatives and are gradually gravitating towards either forming them uh, or participating in them. Uh, but I think that there are a lot of cultural, institutional, uh, and even personal barriers, I should say, uh, to engaging in these kind of efforts. And one of the ways that we can encourage people to do this might be through something like implementing a UBI, uh, which would allow people to have more time and more resources to experiment uh, with these kinds of economic ventures than they do before. But it's very difficult to think now in the United States if you're making, say, you know, 10 bucks an hour, uh, to imagine that somebody's going to sit there and be like, "I really hate the way that my McDonald's is being run. I'm going to go set up my own fast food restaurant and I'm going to form a workplace cooperative with my negligible capital. Right? It's just not going to happen and by the way, I should say, you know if you want to implement a UBI, you know I'd be right there cheering you on, right? I'm not dogmatic about those kind of things i hey, I'd love a fucking thousand dollar check a month
0: stepping back to kind of a higher level of i guess abstraction, part of this seems like this might be a question about Ultimate ends and values. At least this is this is something that seems in a lot of um, market versus socialist debates. This seems to come into play, and what I mean by that is, it seems like for a lot of socialists, workplace democracy, collective ownership, workers controlling things is is not simply an instrumental good in the sense that this will improve the conditions of workers, say. Or give them more autonomy, or whatever else. But that, even if there were alternate ways of achieving those ends, we would still want collective ownership because collective ownership is empowering or meaningful, or there's something there's something fundamentally good about it compared to other to compared to alternatives that might provide us with the same positive benefits. Um, likewise. A lot of pro-market people make the argument that even if it were the case that increased regulations or collective ownership produced more stuff, however we're defining good stuff, the there is deep value in the autonomy and the ability to freely contract and and just the, the freedom that comes from having unregulated markets, and that we shouldn't trade off. And so, for both of you, do you see a role for those kinds of ultimate ends? I mean, Chris, I know you're sorry to say a consequentialist um, said with such disdain. <laughs> and and so it's the, those kinds of questions might not even make sense within a within a moral theory that says it's just it's just kind of those those good consequences of markets produce more wealth. Period. End of story. But. Do those ultimate ends questions factor into this conversation? And Chris, I'll start with you. I, I would say yes.
1: You know, uh, so so you know, economic consequences matter, but but of course, other sorts of consequences matter. So so you know, if someone, uh, you know, if their happiness consists in, in workplace arrangements other than something like workplace democracy, that that counts for me. That that's morally relevant. But I guess what I would say is. Uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, just sort of one really prominent feature of liberal thought is that people, uh, you know, are going to have uh, different conceptions of what their ultimate ends are. And so some people, they, maybe they love workplace democracy, maybe it's great for them, uh, but for other people, it's not. And so my argument is uh, capitalism, perhaps supplemented with redistribution, is better able to accommodate this diversity than socialism. So I say you love workplace democracy. That's cool. Capitalism plus UBI is going to make you rich. And then you can pursue that if you really like it. If you don't, you don't have to. Uh, so we can satisfy both conceptions of the good. And so, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm open to this idea uh, that, that workplace democracy is good for some people. I am more sc- I don't think it's good for me. I am one of this, th- these people. I just want to do my job and go home. Uh, but, uh, but not everybody's like that, but like, that's cool. Um, and, and so I would say, you know, just as we don't have to, uh, y- you know, I don't know if you say this, uh, like, we don't have to push people to go to Disney world. because like, Disney world is great. If I've got the money to go to Disney world, I'm going to Disney world. Other people might be like, ah, it's not for me. I'm not going to go to Disney world. That's fine. To me, workplace democracy is like Disney world. If if you love it and you have the, the income to do it, do it. If you have the means to do it, you should go for it. But that doesn't mean everybody has to go to Disney World. Uh, and, and so that's kind of how I view these sorts of economic arrangements. If you give people the means to make their own choice, then just let them sort it out. But I think this is more compatible with capitalism than with socialism.
0: Matt, to sharpen the question then for you a bit, um, recently on the Reimagining Liberty Book Club, which is in our Discord community, which all of you listeners can get access to by becoming a supporter just the links in the show notes um we read Elizabeth Anderson's private governance book which is a really interesting book and she makes a lot of points about the benefits of workplace democracy and ultimately her her argument is we need more of that to cut against and in the back of the book she in, in kind of a neat feature there's responses published responses from people and one of the responses is from Tyler Cowan and he basically makes the argument you know, markets create a lot of wealth um one of the features of that wealth is if workers are richer they exit becomes easier right like we can we have the resources to quit your job and and move because you've built up more capital or whatever um and so we don't necessarily need workplace democracy what we because exit creates more competition between firms and then those firms will you know, the the bad bosses have a harder time retaining workers if exit is easier, and so they're less they are less likely to be bad bosses. Does that argument if if we stipulate that that's true that like free much freer markets would increase overall wealth and so if and if we stipulate that the the result of that is that workers have a much easier time of of exit does that would you see that as Meaning that workplace democracy isn't necessarily necessary on a large scale because the market has solved this problem, or would you say even in those circumstances we should have workplace democracy?
2: Uh, no, I would actually agree that we should do that then, and that's because you know I'm a Rawlsian, and so my primary concern uh, is that economic arrangements uh, be so uh, you know formulated so that they work to the benefit of the least well off, right? And if you could show me empirically, that this is the absolute best society for the least well-off, there's no better one that we can get, Uh, you know, a libertarian paradise, let's call it that, Uh, then I would sit there and say, well, let's do that. You know, let's roll with it. I'll be happy. That's a just society. Uh, I just don't think that there's any evidence that that's the case, right? Uh, I think that if we look at the societies that have done the most for the least well-off, it's pretty clear that the Scandinavian countries uh, are leagues ahead of us in many respects. And I'd also point out that that's not just true in a development context. I think if you look at the most successful, uh, developed context, excuse me, if you look at something like Lula's uh, workers' movement uh, in Brazil, which lifted, I think it's about 10 million people out of poverty uh, through land redistribution, uh, there are a lot of instances where socialist reforms uh, have done a lot uh, for those who need it the most. But look, on the principled issue, which is I think really the core uh, of this kind of dispute, I actually think that there 's a lot less ground between liberalism and socialism than people think, uh, and part of the reason for that is I spent a lot of my time writing about the political right in fact, that seems to be all that I do right now right i 'm writing a big book on conservatism i 'm criticizing it from uh, a left liberal standpoint or a liberal socialist standpoint uh, and one of the recurring themes uh, that you see in conservative literature is exactly what Hayek said that What differentiates liberals and socialists from conservatives is conservatives are fundamentally committed to this idea that there are, and I quote from his essay why I'm not a conservative, demonstrably superior people uh, who deserve more along virtually every metric you can possibly imagine. Uh, And one of the reasons why I have a lot of sympathy for libertarians and other liberals who don't agree with me about certain things is we're all committed to the idea that people are fundamentally moral equals and that it's important for people to lead free lives uh, of dignity and flourishing wherever possible. So what we're really concerned about, I think, are less the ends, uh, so much as the means to get there. Uh, And a lot of conservative thinkers have acknowledged and recognized this, right? Uh, Martin Heidegger, uh, who was a fascist philosopher, he uh, had some very interesting things to say, so I don't mean to be dismissive. Uh, you know, and his introduction to metaphysics said, there's really no interesting distinctions between liberalism and socialism. Uh, they are metaphysically the same, was his quotation. They're really just about how to build a better, a better refrigerator. Uh, now, that's crude and reductionist, uh, but I think that there's some accuracy to that. Uh, and I think rather than engaging in these endlessly intense disputes uh, between liberal, oh, sorry, um, liberals and socialists, which have defined so much of the 20th century. We should be spending much more time talking about the things that bring us together uh, and asking ourselves what can actually be the best way uh, to make people better off.
1: Well, just to briefly go back to the issue of, of bad bosses and workplace democracy. So I think it's always important that we make apples to apples comparisons here. Rather than compare idealized versions of one kind of arrangement to real world versions of another kind of arrangement, and I don't see any particular reason to think that that worker owners will be uh, better bosses than capitalist bosses. In fact, I think there are pretty good reasons to think that they'll be worse. So I mean look at political democracy uh, like the, you know like you know the the people who voted for Donald Trump. They weren't making wise decisions. They were, they, you know, if you think in some sense that in political democracy your citizens are your are your bosses, your you, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, like th- there's a lot of reasons I think they they don't have much incentive to make wise decisions to be and like the rational ignorance rational rationality stuff explains this. So you know, no individual vote is actually going to make a difference, and so there's no incentive to cast a wise vote. So I just don't see why we would think that economic democracy. Is going to lead to to better bosses than than capitalism, like it, it might, uh, but but you know I think if we're comparing apples to apples, I just you know don't see a reason to, to think that that's the case. It, it could, and then I would expect those sorts of arrangements to flourish under a capitalist system with a UBI. Uh, but but you know at the theoretical level, I, I just don't know why we should give we should put a thumb on the scale in favor of workplace democracy over capitalist employer-employee relations.
2: Well, I think there are a lot of different reasons for that, right? Uh, I mean, one is a principled reason, uh, which is that fundamentally we need to understand democracy, not just in terms of decision-making procedures, uh, but in terms of ways of distributing power uh, in a variety of different sites. Uh, Now, no way of distributing power is going to be perfect, right? Uh, But I think it's Very clear that any kind of circumstance uh, where you have tremendous power in the hands of one person who's allowed to essentially dictate uh, the behavior of a huge number of others, uh, any person with liberal proclivities is going to have a problem, right? Uh, And this is one of the reasons why I think that workplace democracy, uh, where power is extended uh, to a broader array of people, can actually transform uh, that relationship. Right uh, And I mean, anybody who's been in a place of work uh, with a shitty boss uh, where they felt compelled to do things that were against their interest right can probably relate to that right uh, in terms of whether or not democracy is some kind of utopian ideal, right whether it's going to make everything better off all the time, I would be happy to say no, right? Uh, I think it's going to do better most of the time, uh, but there are contexts where that wouldn't necessarily be appropriate right uh, and again, I think that we need to evaluate that contextually uh, and with sensitivity. Uh, and I say that also as a leftist who's concerned, for instance, about cultural imperialism, right? I don't want to go in and rough roughshed uh, over, say, a religious community that organizes things in an anti-democratic way by saying, you know, you democratize your church or whatever, right? Uh, so I'm not, I, I can't sit there and give you a kind of a priori formula uh, for how it is that this should be applied everywhere. Cause I don't think that would be appropriate Uh, But again, I think if we look at the kind of models of workplace democracy that exist in Europe and elsewhere, uh, we can see that people are generally happier, more prosperous, uh, and feel that they have more involvement in the decision making uh, that impacts their lives so profoundly. Because you spend eight hours at work, minimum, uh, every single day for about five days a week, if you're lucky. Uh, There's no reason why it is that you shouldn't have a say there uh, like you would at the political level, where. most of the time, uh, the affairs of state impact your life far less directly and far less routinely than what goes on uh, with your boss.
1: Yeah, I would just second, though, the, the uh, thought that uh, Aaron raised uh, a couple of minutes ago about the power of exit. So I think if you, you do have a viable exit option, that's a pretty powerful safeguard against a bad workplace because you can say, I quit. And again, if you have something like a, a social minimum where you can quit and you'll still have a decent income. Uh, that ge- That gives you a viable exit option, and so here again, you know it, it could be the case that workplace democracy is great uh, in the same way that Disney World is great, and then I say, okay, you know uh, make sure people have the means to go to Disney World if they want or the means to uh you know work in a, a you know democratic cooperative if they want, uh, but if they don't want to, they don't have to and so this to me just seems totally i mean maybe this is just going back to the definitions point, but nothing about this. Uh, seems as though it's incompatible with capitalism, where we say productive property is, is privately owned, and we can redistribute some income that, that's compatible with the private ownership of productive property. Uh, and if you want to freely collectivize, we'll, of course, allow that in the same way that we're going to allow you to do anything else with your, your property that you want. If you want to go to Disney World or whatever, you can do that. We're not going to stop you. And if you don't want to do that, you don't have to. And so, I don't know, I guess, so if if we had laissez-faire capitalism plus a UBI, and then we say whatever workplace arrangements emerge from that, we're fine with. Would you be okay with that?
2: Well, I'd be okay with it uh, provisionally in the sense that I'd say that's a big improvement over what we have now. Uh, So... If it was a choice between you and Donald Trump, for example, I would 100% vote for you, and I can't pay militantly for you, and I'd say, uh, <laughs> let's see it done. That's a low right?
1: bar, though. Come on. That's true, a low true, bar. Sure, you
2: know, Well, I'm, I'm just kind of an anti-Trumpist mood. What can I say, right, You know, after what's happened with the Supreme Court? But but look, you know, I would say that it's provisionally an uh, improvement, but it doesn't go far enough, right, for all the reasons that I listed. And I don't want to kind of rehash uh, what it is that I said before, right? um uh, in terms of you know what you're discussing, look you know I think that implementing something like UBI would be a definite improvement uh, on our situation right now, uh, not just because uh, it would improve the life ex- like sorry, the lifestyles uh, of a lot of people in the United States or elsewhere, uh, but for exactly the reason you mentioned right that it would give people more options to exit in the event that they wanted to, which would transform the power relations uh, between workers and bosses right so it 's definitely a step in the right direction. I would just say that we need to be more aggressive. Uh, In the way that we try to address exactly that problem, since I'm not sure that a UBI would be sufficient. Uh, Now part of the problem, of course, is we have so little data about the impact of UBI, since so few experiments have been tried. So there's really no way of knowing that a priori either. Uh, and that's why I would say that we should have more experiments with it and we'll see what it is that ends up happening. right? Uh, but in terms of the more fundamental question, look, you know, again, my understanding of capitalism uh, isn't centered around uh, the existence of what's sometimes called personal property uh, or even minimal private ownership of the means of production. Uh, my concern is that with capitalism as a social form uh, where because of the power differentials that exist between capitalists and workers, uh, capitalists are able to essentially – exploit surplus value uh, from workers, with them having very, very little capacity to actually resist or exit that, if that's what they so choose. And so my con- socialism would be one where that was ameliorated through a wide variety uh, of different mechanisms, including all the ones that I listed, right? Uh, but... I'm a market socialist, right? I don't believe in a command economy. I don't think that the state should be sitting there saying what people produce. Uh, what I want is a lot of different firms managed preferably by workers uh, who can exit both firms if they want, uh, producing and competing with one another to help bring about prosperity for everyone, both at the state level and hopefully around the globe.
0: What is the role then of the entrepreneur in this? Because if, if firms are all managed in a collective sense... I can I can see that like I can conceptually see how that work. We have we have an existing firm that has its it is making these kinds of widgets and it sees itself, you know, 10 years from now making these kinds of widgets roughly with you know marginal changes and whatnot. And you put some workers on the board and maybe through a kind of snuck in class consciousness, their interests align with everyone else that we've considered to be of the worker class, at least within that firm. And so they govern it. Um, In those regards, but it still is making these widgets, but that seems very different from, and and this picks up on a point that Chris made earlier of a lot of these more socialist countries piggybacking on the innovation that comes out of more capitalist places, you know, huge numbers of our technological innovations come out of the United States, not just in medicine, but, you know, across the board Um, that the entrepreneur, when they're starting up their business, I've got an idea for a new widget, um, they're the ones who have come up with it, and then they're going to direct, at least until it gets to the point where it's this big thing that keeps cranking out the same widgets year after year. Um, does It seems like that if you have the idea, it would kind of hamstring it if you said, okay, now the moment you have started a business and hired your first worker, you have to collectivize the decision-making process. Is that an argument for – entrepreneurship? Like does, does capital, does entrepreneurship in your mind depend upon capitalist arrangements?
1: Uh, I I would certainly say capitalist arrangements do a very good job of facilitating it. I think that that's a really nice case. And so it it might not even be, you know, the entrepreneur in your example might not even be motivated by, by what we would ordinarily think of as material self-interest. They might just say, look, I've got this vision for how this widget is going to be made. And I want to see my vision through. And so collectivization would, uh, be a disincentive in that case, like you said, once they come up with the idea and say, so I mean, and this, I think kind of goes back to the, to the Nozickian point about socialism prohibiting capitalist acts between consenting adults, where you say, I got this great idea for this widget, this widget factory, you want to come work in my factory. You're not going to be a co-owner, but I'm going to pay you a steady wage. And, you know, th- this is how it's going to go. And the worker says, yeah, let's do this. I want to work in the widget factory for a steady income and we're going to make widgets, but, but you're going to run, the, run the show. In accordance with your vision. Uh, it, it seems to me that there's a bit of a dilemma for the socialist in this case, which is they, either they disallow it, that looks like it's going to have bad consequences, it also looks like it might be illiberal because it's going to prevent people from pursuing their own good in their own way, or they can allow it. But then if they allow it, then it looks like the, the socialist arrangement might be unstable. Because if you have a lot of these arrangements start popping up, then it seems like collectiv- uh, collectivization uh, might diminish, and you might see more and more of these kinds of arrangements popping up until you'll just sort of organically develop into a capitalist economy over time. Like I don't want to put too much weight on the on the, the dilemma points, but I do think that this is a worry. You might just have people say, "Look, that, you know, I, I want to produce this new thing in, in this way, and if you want to come work for me, that's cool. Uh, but if it's going to be some sort of you know group project," Uh, where everybody gets their input, I I don't want to do it. I I think that's a real concern.
2: Yeah, well, I'd like to say two things, right? Uh, First, just as an empirical subject matter, I think that there's a lot of evidence to show that actually uh, a high amount of redistribution actually uh, isn't just a useful catalyst, but actually essential uh, for fostering a society that's extremely innovative. Uh, And this is sometimes a point that's unappreciated, right? Uh, I mean, arguably the great... um, catalyst uh for the improvement of the human situation in the 19th century was the advent of something like public education right uh giving everyone a K to 12 let's say that uh, education uh that's provided for free by the state uh that allows people to develop the technical know-how uh to go out there and become innovators engineers whatever it is that they want after uh, and i would argue that we should be doing more of the same through public uh, sorry socializing things like sec- uh, sorry uh post secondary education as well right Uh, And I'd also like to note that, again, a huge number of things that were important innovations actually came through university-state partnerships, Uh, things like the internet, a lot of medical advances, you name it, right? Uh, The second thing that I'd like to point out, again, is that I'm not there to sit there and tell somebody who wants to make a little widget and open a small business uh, and wants to make a profit from that, that they shouldn't do this. My concern with implementing measures to democratize the economy, kicks in when power differentials between capitalists and workers become sufficiently acute that it's very clear that one person has the ability or a group of people have the ability uh, to dramatically impact the lives of others in a way that's not to their benefit, right? So if you want to open a mom and pop store, because you developed a new tart Uh, and you think that you can make some money off of it, I would say, go ahead, do that. I'm going to be there right next to you. I'll buy a couple tarts and I hope you're successful because I have no problem with disparities in income uh, to a certain extent, right? Uh, If you sit there and you start operating a gigantic factory uh, where lots of workers in Southern California are exploited uh, because they're picking berries for pennies an hour, then we're going to have a problem, Right. Uh, So, again, there's a contextuality uh, to my approach to these things uh, that requires that I evaluate the specific situation uh, as it appears rather than necessarily answering these kinds of things a priori. But I think that that's true of most of the political problems that we face, right?
1: Yeah, so just briefly on the first point, I I would just draw a distinction between redistribution and collectivization. So, so you could be pro redistribution. I think I'm, I'm less enthusiastic about redistribution than you are. I think you know it's, it's got its place. Um, but, but again, you could say we don't have collectivization, but but we do have redistribution as a safeguard against things like exploitation to give people um, exit options and things like that. The, the other thing too, though, I think the, the worry about entrepreneurship stands even if we allow the mom and pop shops. So if you have somebody who says. I don't want to make a tart. I want to make the world's first smartphone. But as soon as you start getting a little bit big, we're coming in and collectivizing. It still seems to me like that could have a chilling effect on entrepreneurship and innovation.
2: Well, I'd like to say that, like t- take probably the most important innovation uh, of the 20th century, uh, pioneered by Norman Borlaug, uh, the man who saved a billion people, which is an underappreciated story. So this is a great point where I can actually articulate it. Right For those who don't know, uh, Norman Borlaug was a biochemist uh, who invented particularly resilient kinds of seeds uh, that he distributed patent-free uh, to many developing countries, and it's widely estimated they saved a billion lives through his efforts, right? Uh, but one of the things that Borlaug continuously iterated that I really admire him for is he said, I didn't do this alone. Uh, This isn't me, which is why I don't feel entitled to keep this for myself, particularly when the consequence of redistributing this is going to save so many people. My university was important. The education that I got was important. uh, The endorsement uh, by a lot of these governments was extremely important, right? Uh, The fact that they were able to redistribute them effectively is key. Uh, So these are examples of how it is that establishing good public institutions that educate people, give them the opportunities to grow up to become a Norman Borlaug, uh, and fostering them a communitarian ethos can play a major role uh, in improving the human condition, right? Uh, now, in terms of whether or not putting some restrictions on how much people can profit, uh, whether that would have a chilling effect uh, on innovation, uh, I would say that that that's not necessarily the case, right? There are many instances where we can look at, for instance, Germany, right? Uh, where there are co-determination models in place, where you've seen major innovations in things like the auto industry. Uh, German cars are usually considered to be amongst the best in the world. Uh, And part of the reason for that, of course, is that workers feel invested in what it is that they're doing. They produce a superior product. uh, And that applies also at the level of R&D, where the people feel like they're not just going to sit there, produce a new gadget for their cars, uh, and be told, here's your salary, good job, uh, they're actually going to benefit from this in a very material way because resources that are gained at the level of profit are redistributed in a more egalitarian fashion. So I think that there's a lot of evidence to suggest that a more democratic approach to the economy uh, in the workplace would actually foster something like R&D. Uh, though, again, it really would depend on the context. So don't imagine it be co- appropriate in every circumstance. In our closing minutes,
0: I'll give each of you uh, a chance to to present your final pitch for your side socialism or capitalism and matt since chris went first at the beginning i'll have you go first this time after all of this conversation sell us on socialism
2: well the the thing that i'd like to say before anything else is that uh, what I think Chris is most wrong about uh, is the desirability of going to something like Disneyland. You know, having sat in lawn lines for rides and all that kind of stuff, I just can't understand why anybody uh, would be particularly motivated to go to any theme park, right? So that's what the real debate should have been about. You know, all the rest of the stuff is peripheral. But but look, you know, on the kind of important question, right, uh, I think that the evidence is overwhelming uh, that the best kind of societies and the freest kind of societies, I should also point right now, right now uh, aren't societies where you see unbridled capitalism often uh, operating in close association with a coercive state uh, to bring about negative outcomes for most of the people that live uh, in a given nation. Uh, the best kind of model is what we see in the Nordic countries and in Western Europe. Uh, where there are high levels of word redistribution, high levels of workplace participation, uh, and a deeply communitarian ethos uh, that provides people with a sense of attachment to those around them. Uh, And I would characterize this as a form of socialism brought about by social democratic and socialist parties in cooperation with other groups. Uh, And if that's the best kind of society, I don't see any reason why it is that we should all be trying to aspire to that Uh, Now, that's going to look different in different places. We can't just export that model or import that model uh, ad hoc and say, just do what they do in Norway. Uh, But it's an inspiring vision for the future, Uh, a vision where no child goes hungry, where everybody can fully develop their talents, uh, and where people can become innovative, dynamic participants uh, in their community. And that's what I'd like to see everywhere, if at all possible.
1: Yeah, I, I will concede maybe the Disney World example was, was not a good one. I'll have to rethink that. It's been so long since I've been to, to Disney World. Uh, yeah, I'll have to rethink that going forward. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I guess my, my basic pitch is that I, I think all of the concerns that socialists have with capitalism can be accommodated with uh, moderate reforms to capitalism. So again, I would draw a distinction between redistribution and collectivization, so even someone like Milton Friedman was happy with a negative income tax where you have capitalist institutions, you have productive property being privately owned, uh, but if people are in poverty, they, they get a check from the government every month. And again, we can we can haggle over the details of how that might work, but this, this gives people an exit option if they have a bad boss. Uh, it maybe gives them more resources to experiment with arrangements like workplace democracy, and so my view is we should have something like capitalism some supplemented with redistribution uh, and, and give people the means to pursue their own good in their own way. And I can imagine that for, for some people, this involves workplace democracy and this is consistent with capitalism. And for others, it, it won't involve workplace democracy. And that's fine. Uh, so I think uh, capitalism can accommodate uh, some of the virtues of these uh, socialist in, in, uh, institutions or, or arrangements or workplace uh, arrangements uh, without giving up on the basic idea of capitalism, which is the private ownership of productive property. So if you like socialism, you could still pursue a socialist lifestyle within a capitalist
0: economy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Reimagining Liberty. Here's a preview of our next episode with guest Michael Tolhurst. Become a Reimagining Liberty supporter to get it two weeks early.
3: I don't know if liberals use the term beauty a lot, but these sort of traditionalists will often use the value-loaded term beauty a lot. It's, it's a little tricky because if you're sort of not sort of within that perspective, it's hard to sort of like sort of sympathetically sort of put yourself into it and kind of see what the big thing is. And so it does seem like, OK, like, it's, is it really just about the architecture? But I would suspect liberalism is probably going to, as a position, suggest that you're probably not going to find that deeper meaning in your politics and this may be a fundamental sort of divide i think potentially with with the liberals and the post-liberals who sort of maybe see politics if not a place for deeper meaning certainly a place that can contribute or detract from uh the quest for a deeper meaning by how it shapes society and i think the liberalists would probably just say like look you can find meaning you'll be free to find meaning you should find meaning but you're probably not going to find that in your sort of political theory
0: If you'd like to listen to my conversation with michael two weeks early as well as get access to our discord community where you can discuss episodes with me and your fellow listeners and participate in our fun new book club just click the link in the show notes to learn more or head to reimaginingliberty.com slash subscribe